Welcome to Inside Shopify UX. I'm your host, Lalaoya Layo Pearson, UX Director at Shopify. On today's episode, I speak with UX Director Yesenia Perez Cruz and Principal Designer Roy Stanfield about the relationship between UX and visual design. We'll shed some light on where style can go wrong and give you the inside scoop on Shopify's culture of play. I hope you enjoy. I'm absolutely delighted to have two guests that we have today, Yesenia and Roy, and we are going to talk about maybe a controversial, maybe not so controversial um, element of design, which is, has UX killed visual design? I don't know. You tell me. Yesenia, tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Yesenia Perez-Cruz. I'm a UX director here on the build team, specifically uh, client foundations. And so we build the tools that help teams deliver high quality faster, uh, things like our Polaris design system, um, based out of uh, right outside of Philadelphia. I also, so I am someone that came from a graphic design background whose first title was like visual design. So like, that's where I, how I came up uh, into working on the web. Love it. Love it. And Roy, tell us about you. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Roy Stanfield. I'm principal designer at Shopify, working on the merchant services team. Uh, And that team, uh, Lola knows a whole lot about. Um, I won't stumble my way through it. Uh, but I'm excited to uh, uh, talk about visual design here. It's one of my uh, favorite subjects. So let's maybe starting with you, Roy, just digging into your role a little bit. You are a principal at Shopify, and that is a unique role because it's a director level IC. So maybe just in your own words, what does that actually mean? Sure. Um it's not my first time I've been titled this, and it means something different at every company. I think at Shopify uh, in particular, it means that I spend about, I'd say, um, maybe two months with different teams in a, in a sort of parent team, and in my case, the parent team is merchant services, and um, I'll dive in uh, to any sort of particularly tricky project that uh, any one team is dealing with at any time. And often I find that uh, inside Shopify, our teams are awesomely working in an iterative way. Um, And that sometimes means that they've lost the thread of like where they're trying to go. Uh, So I've most often found myself at Shopify, like trying to um, create a, a sort of green path for that iterative work to kind of proceed towards. We're going to dig into that a little bit more in this episode because we're going to talk about the mechanics of what I've seen you do and how cool it is. Um, <laughs> maybe just to table the, you know, in a less controversial way, maybe. So, yes, Anya, you, you kind of look after Polaris, which is our design system. It's world famous. We use it. Other people on the internet borrow it regularly. What role does visual design actually play at Shopify, especially in the context of a, you know, such a powerful design system. One assumption about design systems is that it takes away the need for designers to work on problems that are considered less of a high priority so that they can focus on the big problems, the quote unquote big problems. But I think that there, that That is a bit of a misconception that then paints decisions about things like visual design as a small problem that is handled by the design system. And so, you know, the design system, it has type scales and it has spacing uh, tokens and, and things like that. 
but it should still be up to a designer to know how to lay out a screen, to know how to use those tools, to know how to have a good sense of hierarchy, to know which things should be conveyed with a visual uh, and need more visual affordance versus something that needs uh, just words. And so I think that sometimes the like perception about a design system is that it has all of those building blocks and you're just like plugging and playing, but actually there still needs to be designers that are intentionally thinking about how do I use this tool set in a critical way and how do I push it when it's not working? Um, and how can I like break out, uh, when, when it's not working or, or when I need to do something new? Yeah. And it's funny because I think, and I, you know, not that I'm shying and saying things that are maybe somewhat controversial, but I always find that sometimes the, the biggest risk with the design system is you turn designers into layout people, right? It's just, here are all the pieces. I'm just going to organize them in a two-dimensional way as opposed to like, hey, I have a bunch of problems that I need to solve and I'm going to work through some kind of UI or experience where I can make choices about what actually ends up on the page. And I know this is a conversation you and I have had a lot this year, Roy, but like you joined Shopify 2020 and you've been kind of observing us in this kind of peak maturity of Polaris and coming in as somebody who's like a deep crafter. So like, what would you say is your perception of how we're doing visual design in an organization where something like Polaris exists? Like how have you observed the craft um, being executed? I have... Um, observed a lot of, um, like a little more offloading than I would have expected to see. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, uh, our, um, focus on UX design, uh, in the past few years and, uh, Polaris being a tool where, um, that sort of filled a gap for a lot of, uh, UXers. Um, that said, um, I think there's a lot of room inside of Polaris to update it and to move it forward, both in terms of visual look and feel, um, so that it feels a little uh, more future forward. Um, because I, I believe it's dated to 2016 or 17. Is that right, Jacenia? 17. Yeah. 17. Yeah. Um, and I'm coming from a company where I was used to seeing these things updated yearly um, so that they, they sort of kept the new glow and feel. So that's one thing. When you say update, do you mean like, visual refresh or like adding things in like what level of update are you actually talking about i've seen it like a flywheel uh, i'll use a shopify a great shopify term where you know it, it started um a, a design system starts in a certain time 2015 16 17 uh and it has a minimum number of components and it has um, a job to be sold through the company and as uh, more and more people adopt it um, you see a demand for it. And as you see mm -hmm. that demand, you increase both its scope and you refresh it as you go forward. Um, yeah. and I, and, and I think we could do a, a bit, and I know Jacinia and I talk about this all the time and, and you too, Lola, like we have a little bit of work to do to kind of get that flywheel turning. Do you know what's interesting about what you, what you just said about, um, so typically a design system, you start with a little bit of a couple pieces then yeah. those pieces are integrated as those smaller pieces are integrated the value for it builds and you keep building on it over time and i always think about like gall's law like um you have to start with a simple system and if you start mm -hmm. with a complex system you can't get to simplicity 
So (laughs) starting by having a very comprehensive amount of components then makes it very difficult to change once it's like made its way into products. And it's something, it's something that I think about all the time. We're in a great space where our designers can um, push, uh, push the demand. They can show where uh, Polaris was excellent a few years ago um, for an admin centric world and where um, new products that are being developed uh, could benefit from a rethink of certain components um, or an addition of certain components. And so what I really uh, am looking forward to at Shopify is I feel like we're on the road to creating that kind of demand through our UX work. And so... This is something, it's interesting, in this conversation, we've done it as well. It's like, we do end up talking about Polaris as if it is the design output of Shopify, when actually it's a tool that we have, right? So maybe to center back on this concept of visual design, and you said it earlier on, it's like, we have optimized a lot for UX, and potentially some that meant that we've kind of looked a little bit differently at this concept of visual design or like UI. Now, there are a ton of people who are like, and tell me what now, like explain the difference, right? So, so what is, <laughs> what is that difference potentially in that thinking about like UX or like interaction design versus visual design and how we're thinking about making sure that we're maybe doing a little bit of a better job on both fronts, right, in general? Something that I just see across the industry is kind of positioning those two like as against each other. So yeah. I'll see things like, well, why is a designer caring about like this nuance of a typeface when you should be focused on like big business problems? And I think it, it has to do with some of just digital design being less of a mature practice that like you see first there was this a reaction against like the snobby like designer, like visual designer that was like, <laughs> oh, I Comic Sans is is awful and designers are just here to rant about like Comic Sans and Papyrus that went all the way to then like UX, like, no, we're legitimate and everything that we do is quantifiable. And here's all of the steps and processes that we take to make UX design appear legitimate and design isn't part of it. And so I still find that we talk about, um, we still talk about the way that we work as if there's like an underlying layer um, that is like the functionality. And then there's like a veneer on top of it when like, that's not enough. Like visual design is not about the veneer that is on top of something. It's about, um, I think it's about like the visceral reaction that someone has when they first encounter, uh, a design and how it makes them feel. And then once you get past the visceral reaction, then it's like, okay, does this work? How well does this work? Yeah. Because I think that's an interesting distinction that we make because to a certain extent, you have these two extremes of internet, right? Like for your average Joe, it is very easy to bootstrap UI. Like there are a million and one design systems and tools, including ours that are super easy. Grab and like, you know, copy, paste, shift, and you've got like UI that kind of works and is fairly usable. And then on the other side, you've got like Dribble and like other sites with beautiful design portfolios of absolutely stunning craftsmanship things that would never be buildable or usable in the real world (laughs) and then you've got like the reality in between which is like companies like us and products where we're like solving problems still trying to make stuff that's beautiful and good looking 
but having to deal with like, you know, the inheritance of legacy and all that. So there's like a bunch of complex things in there that still demand our attention, but yet we do still want to see this great, like visceral thing. We still want people to see our designs mm -hmm. and be like, wow, that is a good looking piece, right? Yeah, the funny thing is people always mention Craigslist as a reason to yeah. describe why visual design doesn't matter. But the thing about Craigslist is that the design looks like classified ads. And so like the metaphor is there and it's appropriate. And so it's actually not a good justification for why like visual design doesn't matter. It just means that in that case, that choice made sense for that product. Absolutely. It was a context shift for me to come to Shopify and to realize that uh, UX design and visual design were seen as somewhat different. Or, or not the same thing. And I, I had been coming from a world that had been using the term product design for quite a while and uh, UX design had fallen out of favor. And um, product design had linked those pretty heavily for me. They weren't separate. So I like to look back to that UX design term and, and kind of see these things as not separate. And, and one of the, the points that I thought about like before we had this conversation I was trying to bring forward was that there are sort of like every year new visual norms that are occurring in software. And um, part of what I think it's Jacob's law, it's the laws of UX. Jacob's law says that, um, you know, obeying these norms is a key to usability because most of the time people are on different software than your own. So in my mind, what we have to do is sort of keep up with those visual norms, maybe sometimes push them into the future. But uh, it's part of usability to make sure that we're matching up with the current. I also believe that um, it's not good to accidentally create visual design that sort of feels older because I believe that that erodes trust that we're a part of the future. So it's pretty important to keep, I'll use that term again, that flywheel turning in order to keep this stuff um, saying that, that we're a part of the future and that we understand how you work today. It's interesting what you say there, because I think you're alluding to like using patterns uh, as a, as a kind of a proxy for usability to like define the patterns and, Sometimes the challenge is there is no pattern, right? There is no, totally. I can't design familiarity into this because it's, this thing has never been done. This problem has never been solved this way. Um, and I think that's where the challenge of a design system comes in, because then you're trying to take a tool that has a set of jobs that it was doing and then apply it to a new job that it was never designed to do. And mm -hmm. what you should really do at that point is say, Hey, as a designer, just going to take a blank sheet of paper now and I'm just going to create the most appropriate thing to solve this problem right and that I think that's where the push is to get any designer to think it's like try and contextualize the need above and beyond any kind of other tool set and that probably applies to whether or not you're opinionated about using sketch or figma or framer <laughs> or some other you know like any tool kind of has that that challenge right that limitation Tell me then about how we're thinking about this at Shopify, because one of the things that the two of you have been working on is you said something earlier on, Roy, about um, UX and visual being different or feeling distinct at Shopify, when actually we also use product design as, you know, the kind of the, the, mm -hmm. the job title, but we have maybe over-indexed on one end of that spectrum versus the other. So you two have been working on like our intake process and like the ways in which we assess people and talk, talk, talk about that. So tell us a little bit about what you guys have been looking at and what you're looking for as we like hire new designers into the, the organization. Something that we have been looking at is like the first 
step um, that usually happens in an interview process historically has been like this initial portfolio review. And that's typically been like a person uh, is, is having that interview to kind of give them a, the, a candidate a yes or a no. But what we have been looking at is a like a blind like pre-screening where portfolios come in and there are people that are kind of like assigned to like screen for just like a baseline of like visual design chops. And so we created some criteria. Um, we kind of like went through with a small group and kind of defined like, well, what are the signals that would tell us whether someone has that quality, like baseline quality bar of visual design? And so there were things about typography and hierarchy. I'm very big on space. Like someone that can really like design space well is just, that is like the difference between like, okay and, and great to me a lot of the time. Um, it's sometimes gonna be really overlooked. Um, so uh, yeah, things like spacing, opinionated grid. Um, also like, does it feel like this person has a point of view about design? And like, is there a sense of, like joy uh that that comes through like a like a like a joy in in, in the work i mean how do you quantify joy that's that's trickier but i think it's just like if we can get people that are that are doing these screenings that have an eye for it um sometimes it can again it, like design can be a little bit unquantifiable sometimes um so yeah we're, do, we're doing that as that initial check um just so we're we're making sure that we're, yeah, we're prioritizing this baseline um, for, for people that are coming in. We had previously had two in-person UX reviews and they were sort of redundant uh, and mm -hmm. they were um, individuals doing each one. And what, what we were finding from TA is that- TA being our talent team. Yes, our talent team, was that we were yeah. getting conf conflicting uh, opinions from those two different interviews. And what was happening was that, um, interviewers, probably their own judgment call or their preferences were leading them to say yes in one case and no in the same, and no in another case for the same person. So, so this was kind of like uh, a signal that those weren't very rigorous in some sense. Um, and then we also were starting to confront the idea that we uh, needed to um, sort of rebalance the UX team towards visual design in order to, to sort of, um, project ourselves into the future of design. So um, thanks to our VP of design, Cynthia, and, and our uh, director on merchant services, Monica, um, there was an openness and desire to do better. Uh, and so we came up with this pilot um, and it was the opportunity to replace one of those in-person reviews with this async portfolio review uh, process that Justenia just described. Uh, and in doing that, we've like, like we found some major benefits. One was, there's a high correlation between people that are passing that visual design screen and also passing the UX interview and getting hired. So super high correlation is happening. Um, the other uh, big benefit is we now have a, a great set of data to work from to train other people inside of our company on how to do these interviews going forward. And lastly, I'd say it's hard to quantify exactly, and I don't have the real numbers in front of me, but it looks like we've saved something like 150 in-person uh, interview hours for our interviewers by doing the async upfront. So ultimately, great big data set we now have. Um, we know that the quality is improved um, and uh, we're saving, uh, we're, we're much more efficient in the interview process.
I love that metrics add up across the board and we have some, I love the fact that it's a blind process as well. So there is that opportunity that the portfolio speaks for itself and like it's unequivocal. A portfolio is a really important design artifact. Like as a designer, you need that. That is your, your suitcase of skill and experience and everything else. And so we value that and we want to look at it as objectively as possible. So let's come back to something else that I think, um, is still an element of visual design, right? Which is like style, uh, or like, you know, you both mentioned opinionated UI, uh, and you know, two things that we've released this year are very opinionated UI oriented towards our developer audiences, but we have DevDocs, which was released earlier this year, which kind of took on this very retro vibe with like sort of like gaming references and then hydrogen, which pushes that even further with like some super old school gaming um, references, but also very current in that it alludes to a lot of the UI that's coming out of the Web3 and blockchain world and, you know, decentralized apps. So it's kind of combining old school and new school in like an interesting way. But they're both so different from each other and then so different from Polaris, but it's all come out of the same shop. So like, what does that, like, how, how do you feel about that, that sort of usage of flair or like style or being like super pointy about like, you know, some people be looking at it and they're like, what the heck is this? Like, you know, why did they do that? This is a company, for goodness sake. <laughs> what, you, what is your take on that, Yesenia? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that something that we can sometimes over index on is trying to explain a feeling just with words. So... When we were working on Shopify.dev, some of the things that we wanted to convey to people were, hey, you should feel excited about working on this platform. This platform makes it really easy for you to get started. There's a great opportunity for you here. And you can do that in a way that is just listing out bullet points with generic images of code. Um, but again, that's not tapping into a visceral response in a developer. And so that's where like the idea of leaning into like the pixel art and the, the gaming metaphors came from because we can use it as like a storytelling device and a picture is worth a thousand words. Like we don't need to be as verbose if we're telling the story of like the homepage illustration was like, here's Commerce Town and everybody can claim their spot on Commerce Town. But below that you have like the unspoken heroes who are the developers who are coding this. And below that in the basement, right there we are with like the APIs that we're building that like let you be the heroes in Commerce Town. So you can convey that with an illustration and you don't have to be so literal um, with the with the words. Um, I think something, something that I, that I, that I think about a lot though, when it comes to visual design and like flair is it has to feel authentic. So I think where style can go wrong is if it feels inauthentic and if it feels like you don't understand the people that you're designing for. So the thing that was beneficial for Shopify.dev was that people that were working on it understood the culture. They understood like, okay, what are the types of things that developers have used before? What are, what are the, like the, the types of tools that they're using and how do we reference that? So we appear like we're in the know, we're not like, like the hello fellow kids meme. And I think that a lot of the times the difference between something that feels like overly designed and like, dribble style design for the sake of designers and something that feels 
like, oh, you know, you took a risk, but it, but it makes sense. Is that authenticity? Um, I think in the case of like both these tools being for a developer audience, it's slightly easier because it's a, it's a, it's a in that sense, right? Yeah. It's a, and it's also a, like a more focused audience versus when we're designing for merchants, there's just so much var- yeah. variability in types of like where merchants live, the types of work they're doing, the, their brands, that it becomes yeah. uh, trickier to figure out how we can be spiky there. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting though, because Roy, I feel like you, so in our time working together, we've worked on a bunch of projects and I feel like you innately find a way to inject style into the merchant experiences. So like you, you seem to role model how to like, keep it feeling consistent, but then here's just a really cool way <laughs> of treating this kind of box. And then like, you're seeing things in shadow and lines and depth and three dimensions. So like, how do you, how have you cultivated that ability to have style, even when you're designing for, for essentially like mass appeal, right? Wow. What a nice compliment. Thank you, Lola. And by the way, working with you has been <laughs> one of the working with you has been uh, such a pleasure and I can't wait to uh, th- I'm so glad that we get to keep going um, I paid him to say that <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know I was thinking about there was a question I was reading how can I'm, I'm going to answer the question I know how to answer because I'm not sure I know exactly how to answer it from where I sit today but uh, how can designers bridge um, you know function with the art of design and i was thinking about like how i learned to design and and what it came down to was um i i did three things i think i, I studied the fundamentals of graphic layout um like as like in a serious way like i tried to know as much as i could and i probably spent several years like kind of looking at each book that i could get my hands on uh the strand in new york was great um copying screens that I admire to learn their precise dimensions by heart. (laughs) So I would, yeah, I would um, screenshot like a mobile app, you know, to death, something I admired. And I would just like um, lay out over it until I could remember, you know, if I went back to iOS four, I can remember that it was Helvetica 17 point, you know? So it was like precision. Right. Uh, And the last thing that kind of keeps me going today is uh, learning about the people that made the stuff. So um, this is something I actually look for in our interviews that I, I don't find, seldom, I seldom find, but when I do find it, I know I found a person, is, um, you know, who are the other designers that they know of? And do they know the stories of, of how some of these things came to be? Um, one really great one that I'll just point out that anybody can look up is Boss Ording. Um, and how B-A-S, and then second word, O-R-D-I-N-G, um, a video you can find on YouTube, uh, put out by, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, uh, the history of computers. And uh, he describes, you know, being a student, uh, focusing on animation, visual animation, bumping into Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, like seeing in him a way to create the doc that we all know today in our, in our Macs. And then that later kind of evolving into a lot of the UIs we know in the iPhone. So learning about people has kept me interested over, you know, something like 15 years now. Yeah. It's funny you say that though, because something that strikes me is 
How often do we see modern examples of people telling the story of how I designed it around, say, UI, like software UI, not so much like um, platform, but certainly web-based UI. Like we're miss, we're actually missing. I feel like there's an air gap. Yeah. You know, I almost want to be able to be like, who designed this? This is super cool. Who designed that? It's like it come from an organization or a company, but there's, there's going to be a design story behind that. There's going to be an inspiration story, the story of dev is exactly that where actually yeah. maybe we should be doing a better job of sharing that perspective so that other designers can also be continuing to be inspired by it more often you know the thing that you described about like the second thing that you described like trying to deconstruct the decisions that someone made i still do that sometimes yeah. um yeah. so if i see again going back to like good space design um I, the stripe team published this press I think it's press st site. Yep. Oh, yeah. um, the, book, the book site. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, you can look at it and, and there's so many amazing things about it. But again, I was like, wow, look at the space system. And that's the second time that I've looked at something that Stripe has done where I'm like, I wonder if I can just inspect code and figure out their space scale, like how quickly I can figure out their spacing scale. <laughs> and um, just for fun. Uh, but, but I think that... Sometimes I wonder if the tools that designers have today makes it too easy. You know what? It's really funny you mentioned that because one of the sites I used to reference a lot way back in the day, and it was totally not safe for work, but I used to <laughs> reference it because it was so well designed without any visible UI, right? It was called the worst drug. And what it was, was like a, a collection of like a rolling screen of like internet memes so the most popular memes on the internet and obviously most of them were like cats and you know porn um and so you weren't <laughs> going to open this in front of your boss but actually like the site was so well done that it looked like it, you couldn't control it but you you know everything you thought to do like if you pressed your arrow keys or you clicked or you paused you pressed the space bar or like you know stuff would appear from the top like everything just worked and I, I, I always looked at it and I was like, how brave did you have to be to create a UI with so many controls, but no UI? You know, how did you actually determine that you would make this keyboard control work versus just putting a button there or, you know, like some um, epsilons and stuff and having like forward and backwards and all of that kind of stuff. I think that's the similar thing to what you're saying about like working out like space decisions because that's almost an act of boldness in itself isn't it it's so exciting it's so exciting to see uh, a piece of software that feels like it was made um that its design is the moment of its creation as well where yeah. um it was born of prototype and it yes. has uh been refined as prototype um and that's just a super exciting place because you, you still find intuitive interactions that that you weren't you know wouldn't have otherwise planned so yeah. um, I love what you're describing there. And, yeah. and and maybe I could tie it back into Shopify by thinking about our studio culture. Like yeah. how, how do we create a space of play um, that is um, that enlivens our culture beyond the work that we're doing? I, I think that that kind yeah. of positivity inside of our uh, UX designers is what's going to lead to uh, things that eventually do make their way into the product uh, in some yeah. form that's extremely usable for a merchant. Yeah, I love that. And I think I think that is something that is a huge benefit, actually. So this is the largest design organization I have ever worked in. And I think it'd probably be, you know, a number of magnitude of difference for most people. You know, we've got, 
I don't know what the official number is, but upwards of 450 designers in the team in, uh, across the globe. And the amount of inspiration that you can share in that context where it's like, here's a thing that I saw. Here's a thing I created. Here's a thing that I used to do in my old company. Here's, you know, our, our experience of the internet is different. Our experience of design culture is different. And like that richness being brought to bear into the product is like so much potential to blow each other's minds. Um, and like, just keep doing cool stuff all over the place, you know? Um, okay. So I have a gimmick and the gimmick didn't work the last time, but it's going to work this time. So as we close out, uh, the show, I wanted to introduce our little fortune teller. Now this has been expertly designed in Shopify. So we have four starting points. We've got the rocket, we've got the banana. Uh, I can barely see it. So we've got a shopping trolley and then we've got, oh, where is it going? The cabbage, which is, a, you know, a, a link back to an internal joke um, about Toby talking about cabbages uh, earlier this year. So Yesenia, you're going to go first. Which one of these would you like to pick? Rocket. The rocket? Okay. So we're going to go R-O-C-K-E-T. Right, you've got the number. Seven, eight, three, and four. Seven. Seven. Okay. The number seven says, question is, da, 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 da. Um, what is your process for starting a new thing? So you've got a new piece of work. How do you start? How do you get going? I use a lot of whiteboards. I have one, two, three, four, four whiteboards, uh, separate whiteboards scattered about. Um, so I like to kind of get like, yeah, like my map, my map of the, of everything, uh, yeah. like mapped out. Um, because I'm trying to understand like what I want to narrow in on. So after I do that, uh, then it's a lot of pacing back and forth to refine my idea, pace, 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 back and forth, go back to my whiteboard, pace, pace, pace. Eventually I have something that I want to like execute on. Um, but same, whether it's a doc or presentation or something that is designed, I try to spend like the least amount of time in front of the computer as possible and like yeah. shape my idea then go into execution mode after yeah that. that's super cool Absolutely. i love the fact that you've got all so many whiteboards everywhere because you know a different one <laughs> Depend, like do i want screen. the small one do i want the one that's on the wall do i want <laughs> the one on rollers yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> We'll have to do a um, designer's uh, cribs type episode where we just be like, how have you set up this space? Here you set his whiteboards. Uh, thank you for that. Okay, Roy, what would you like to go with? Oh, I got to go cabbage. Cabbage? Okay. Or, can I spell it at the top of my head? Without oh, right? okay. You can do lettuce. No, no. It's, oh, no. that's true, actually. Yeah. Is it, it's supposed to be lettuce, not it's cabbage. Lettuce. Yeah. See? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, it's actually lettuce. Let's do that. Uh, L-E-T-T. U C E, uh, you have numbers one, five, six, and two to pick from. Now numbers are really important, so let me think for a second on this one. Uh, two. Two. Okay, let's go with question number two, which is, ooh, what is your favorite iconic design? Can be digital or not. Favorite iconic design. Um. I'm, I'm sort of torn between talking architecture 
I think I'll talk architecture. Um, I had the, a feeling you were going to go to architecture, but yeah. go on. <laughs> <laughs> and gosh, I, I hope I don't mispronounce the name, but uh, the Bauer Whitney Museum. Um, I'm not even sure if it's still the Whitney Museum, um, but uh, the original sort of Whitney building, uh, I, I loved experiencing and uh, going through empty or full of art, regardless which one it was. And um I spent a little time working there at some point as well. And so I kind of felt the, I felt that building uh, and it was so such a, a need for the curators to have a new space and to, to make something different. And I understood that need, but it was such a, uh, you know, a, a, a removal of that one building that, um, that I uh, had such an attachment to. Does that make sense? So I love feeling that feeling of that building. Yeah, no, that is a really great one because I think those spaces, especially museums, do have that like very, uh, they they are designed to create emotion and to, to like carry you through. I think one that's maybe similar to that is like the Tate Modern in, the, mm. in London, which mm-hmm. was never envisioned to be a museum. Like it was a functional, you know, industrial building that was turned yeah. into and then they've got this space on the ground floor that changes depending on the exhibit, but it feels like it reinvents itself. Should basically just feel like a giant warehouse, but every time there's a different exhibit and art yeah. there, you kind of go through a different set of emotions on the way in and through and out, and then you look up and it just, it has this very physical effect. Um, I wish, I, I think in a former life, some of us would probably have been architects just because it's the same kind of energy that you take through these different types of design artifacts, right? Yeah, but the way that you can, uh, just the way that you can communicate a sense of awe. Yeah. Is, I would, like, I would love to figure out if we could do that digitally, but I think that that's the thing that I always think about with architecture, yeah. like the way that you can, yeah, what you were saying, Roy, that you can, you could feel yeah. it. That commitment, yes. that commitment to a single design, the, the years yeah. you're going to be with that thing. And, yeah. and, and sometimes I guess maybe I can relate that back to, to working in house. It's like yeah. the years I'm going to spend with the Shopify. Yeah. 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 We're going to refine and we're going to hone yeah. this thing and we're going to make it pristine. Roy, Yesenia, thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation and I think we can conclude UX has not killed visual design, <laughs> but we definitely got to do some resuscitation and get some extra lifeblood, <laughs> maybe a couple of transfusions of inspiration in there just to kick things back into equilibrium so thank you so much for walking us through the discussion very happy that this worked yay Yay. Uh, (laughs) so we'll be doing more of that and yeah we'll speak to you next time on the podcast thanks for listening to inside shopify ux check out more from our team or find out how to join us by visiting ux.shopify.com inside shopify ux is hosted by me lalao yalao pearson Produced by Jen Shaw. Assisted by Isabel Hamilcarassi. Edited by Michael Bussa. With art and graphics by Alicia Giroux. Danny Chavez Ackerman. And Trevor Slovani. Music by Silent Quiet Spaces. Next week, I chat with the one and only Toby Looker, Shopify CEO.